Hello and welcome to a delusional episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinemechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana. Welcome to part one of the Meta Entertainment Trilogy with 2001's Mulholland Drive. We'll jump into Five Point Inspection with Made for TV, Lynchpin, McKnight in Shining Armor, L.A. Noir, and Color Theory. But before we do, let's go ahead and check in on the shop. Dude, dude, the shop is closed for the night. We don't need all these lights on. Let's turn the turn off. Our... And Jesus Christ, what are all these blinds doing open? Uh, what is wrong with you? Uh, do we still have the revolver in the safe? No, I always have it on me. What's going on? Uh, oh, well, good to know. Uh, I'm just out in the alley. Just, just a minute ago, I'm breaking down boxes, and some dude in a fucking cowboy costume walks up on me. Dude, there's homeless people out there all the time. Probably just looking for scrap metal or something. Nothing to worry about. Uh, dude, this guy was not homeless. I mean, he had a fresh-looking plaid jacket, bandana kind of combo. Hmm, sounds fashionable. I, I really don't think you get it. Okay, so you know all those lights out back you've been asking me to replace? Well, of course I haven't, but... Somehow they all turned on as soon as this cowboy started talking to me. I I can't even remember the details of what he said. Well, just stop for a little second and think about it. Will you do that for me? Um, it was some fucking hippie bullshit. Something about my attitude. Look, I can't remember. It was a supernatural cowboy, for fuck's sake. I, I, I'm thinking. No, you're not thinking. You're too busy being a smart aleck to be thinking. Now I want you to think and stop being a smart aleck. You think you can try that for me? Uh, what what's going on here? That's exactly what he said. Why why does this all feel like some incoherent dream? And and why do you all of a sudden have a country twang? Because Travis, it is an incoherent dream. Uh. Uh. Dude, wake up. We gotta go review this week's movie. We gotta oh, do a good job. Oh, shit, sorry. I I dozed off. Thank, thanks. Alright, let's go. Let's go. Now, you'll see me one more time if you do good. You'll see me two more times if you do bad. Oh, Jesus Christ. Let's just go review Mulholland Drive. Fresh to LA, aspiring actress Betty dreams of making it big. When she arrives at her aunt's apartment, she's surprised to find a mysterious woman recovering in the shower. Having no recollection of the wreck that took her memory or the assassination attempt it prevented, Rita must depend on Betty's goodwill to help her unravel the truth of her past. As the two grow closer, the relationship proves to be the key to determining what really happened that fateful night on Mulholland Drive. All right, Travis, before we jump into five points, I would love to know your quick diagnostic of 2001's Mulholland Drive. I think it's incredibly appropriate that uh, you 
kind of swap some names and some words in the <laughs> in the initial plot description, I'm sure there's a chance that that'll come out in the bloopers. Well, now it has to. Thanks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, checkmate. Um. Okay, so first of all, we're doing the Meta Hollywood Trilogy, and this one was recommended to me uh, by an associate. And every time I hear David Lynch, it's it's kind of a hard stop for me. I was assured that his that this was his most accessible work, and, and I don't disagree with that. But uh, accessible and David Lynch are kind of oxymorons. I- I have a theory uh, why people Lin- find this accessible, and I'll I'll go into it after. I want to hear a little bit more from you. Wait, I'm sorry. What'd you say? I have a theory as to why people think this is his most accessible work, and I will get into that. But I want to hear more about your initial initial take. I enjoyed the movie. I think it's a very it's a specific kind of movie. I almost think that this movie is not worth watching unless you're going to watch it at least twice. Mm-hmm. I've only watched it once. So that that's the caveat I'll, I'll put in here. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. I think there's a little bit of cult of Kubrick going back to our shining podcast where David Lynch gets a ton of credit where sometimes I think it, it's not necessarily intentional on his part. But again, it's not five points perfectly encapsulated, so I don't want to go too far. Yeah, we'll get it. Lynch is notorious for like he'll change like you get the script the day of and like you have no idea what it is. Like uh, just as a a quick aside, like at one point, the actor who plays uh, the director, Adam, I guess after the scene he did with the cowboy and the cowboy mentions like if you see me two more times, it'll be bad. The the uh, actor went up to Lynch goes. So am I going to wind up seeing the cowboy two more times in the movie? And Lynch's response was, we'll find out. <laughs> like, he had no, <laughs> had no fucking clue. Like, he just kind of lets things like uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with David Lynch's material. Like, I loved Twin Peaks. Granted, I haven't been able to go back and watch when I think it was Showtime or somebody gave him money to finish Twin Peaks. And even that was a little too fucking weird for me. Um, but I love Twin Peaks. I'm a fan of David Lynch's material, but He's weird and avant-garde. Like, there's a part where I, th- I forget what it's called. It's like Amangola or something like that. But in Twin Peaks, essentially, these demons are consuming creamed corn. And it's supposed to be a physical manifestation of people's souls. And the, the way the story goes is essentially David Lynch, they had creamed corn on, like, the set one day and just thought it looked cool and decided that he was just going to put it in the show. Like, he just he's a fly-by-the-seat-of-his-fucking-pants kind of guy. Like, you literally don't know what the fuck you're going to get with him, which is kind of why I like David Lynch, because it is just chaos. Like, you don't know what you're getting. Yeah, the actor you're talking about that plays Adam, the director, is, is Justin Theroux. I'm a big fan of his. Uh, he was interviewed about this movie and he basically kind of threw up his hands as well and said, I don't know. David Lynch just works from his subconscious, which is, I think the perfect way to describe him. Uh, but then, like you said, he sees some cream of corn on set. Is that subconscious? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, but the reason I think this movie is his most accessible is if you haven't watched it, we're about to get into spoiler territory, all right? So I'm going to give about a five-second delay if you need to go watch the movie or want to watch it before we get into into the review. 
I've given you your five seconds. Um, I think this is the most accessible version of his films because at the end, it allows him to get away with making a surrealist movie because the last 30 minutes reveals that the entire thing was a dream. And then it's like, oh, okay, all of that, like I'm okay with how fucking weird everything else was because now I realize it was a dream sequence the whole time as opposed to any of his other material where it winds up at the end. You're just like, no, it's just a fucking weird world that David Lynch created. Like, I think people are able to digest this more because again, at the end, when you realize, oh, this was a delusion of Diane's at that point, you realize that's when you realize like, okay, I can deal with how weird the rest of the fucking movie is because it is supposed to be kind of this weird, incoherent fever dream. Right. And then therefore it gives you context where you're willing to forgive some of the other shit that happens in the movie. Well, let me ask you, I agree, most of this movie is a dream. Mm-hmm. Is it a dream when the little old people walk under the door and torment Naomi Watts into the point where she kills herself? Because I was pretty sure at that point we were in quote-unquote reality. I think we are. I think at that point it's just an illustration of like she's being haunted by her demons. Like that's basically she's hallucinating because she's starting to become un- like starting to unravel at that point because she's dealing with the guilt and the you know reconciliation of what she did. And I think that is just literally a hallucination or a manifestation of her demons like – to me, those were like, that was her caretakers, her parents, grandparents, whatever it was. Like, they thought so highly of her. She was going to be so great. You know, just the naivety of of them thinking, oh, you're going to make it in Hollywood. And ultimately, she's disappointed them because she's just gone completely off the rails and essentially had a former lover assassinated, right? So that's just her, again, not being able to live with essentially, you know, what she's become. <clears throat> And I get that. It's just in a movie full of weird imagery. And I guess this is not your point. You're just saying this is why it's so, quote unquote, accessible for David Lynch's standard. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't really change anything he does after it's revealed that it's a dream. So, like, yeah, I get what you're saying. It's a manifestation of her demons. These are the people that kind of encourage her to go to Hollywood, and now she's a failure and, and complicit in murder. I think the thing that changes the most is the way he actually has the actors act. Like, they actually act like they're in a fucking movie, right? They're not in this weird fantasy world. Because that was one of my first things. Like, it's – and now we're, we're going to jump into f- five points. Because when, when it starts off, I – uh, Travis, I kid you not, I think my first two notes for this movie were, is this an iPad commercial or an iPod commercial, um, and then this movie is shot like a TV show. Th- those are my first two notes <laughs> I put down. And then in doing some research, I realized it was a TV show. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I feel a little bit better about that assessment. I don't so, know if it, do you want to jump into made for TV first? Yeah, let's go ahead and jump into made for TV because like and I don't know what it was about the way it was shot. I don't know if it's because I was familiar with he did Twin Peaks. I don't know if it's because with TV, you don't get a lot of like, at that time, like a lot of depth of field shots like they're all pretty much just standard. And like there wasn't a whole lot of depth of field being used or like whatever it was like to me. The first part of this movie felt very much like, oh, this feels like a TV show. This doesn't feel like it's a feature-length movie. And then again, afterward, you kind of find out, oh, I mean, when I say find out, not in the movie. I mean, this in research. This was originally shot as a pilot for a TV show that was supposed to 
potentially be a spinoff of Twin Peaks, and ABC shot it down and said, like, fuck no, we're not doing this. And then some French studio came up and basically threw the rest of the money that David Lynch needed to finish it off, and basically they took the original footage they used for the hour-long pilot and then shot some more and then made it into a feature-length movie. Yeah, it almost like two full years later, right? Yes. Like yeah, it was principal like, photography wrapped, and then almost two years later, they shoot the stuff for the film, right? Yes. Yeah, so again, that makes me – a lot of the jarring differences and a lot of uh, you know the credit that goes to Lynch about – you know, the weird non-connective tissue and how characters look different. Again, I wonder how much of that is intentional and how much of the fact that this is a stitch job between a TV pilot and then a feature film. Watching his previous stuff, I would give him credit for that. Again, when I say credit, I don't mean that it was intentional. I would just say that's something he would have done anyway. Like, <laughs> like that's none of this movie felt out of place to me for David Lynch. In fact, it was, I think the moment where I realized we went, we were going full David Lynch was the first, um, was it Dickie's restaurant scene when, what are the characters? I think it's Dave or is it Gabe? Who's, who's the, Dan, sorry. Dan and Herb are talking and he's talking about, Dan's talking about his dream. I'm like, okay, this is starting to get a little weird. And like, there's some actual like tension I felt in that scene when he's walking out and he's got like the cold sweat. I'm like, oh man, you know, Patrick Fisher, or uh, was it F Fischler? Yeah, is doing a fantastic job with this scene. And then when he gets to the dumpster and the weird swamp witch comes out, I was like, okay, we're in David Lynch territory now. <laughs> like, we're going full Lynch. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? That's almost when. Actually, that's the exact moment when I was starting to feel discouraged. So maybe that's the difference between you and me. You appreciate Lynch more. But that diner scene where he's describing the nightmare and, you know, there's a monster behind the diner. But most importantly for me, how he's describing his colleague across the table, like, hey, you're up by the register in my dream. And then we immediately go to that, and he seems distrustful. I appreciated the paranoia that that set up, but then, yeah, when there's a swamp homeless witch behind the restaurant, I'm like, oh, God, this is going to be true David Lynch. Accessible, my ass. Yeah, and then the swamp witch doesn't come back up until the very end of the movie where she's putting the blue box into what looks like, you know, what you would expect a homeless person to put their alcohol in. And then the old people pop out of it. I'm like, yeah, this is where we're just getting into weird Lynch territory where it's like, there's like, there's plenty of times where I've watched interviews with Lynch or like descriptions of like scenes he's done where sometimes it's like, he has no explanation for some of the stuff he does. Like, it's like, I just thought it was it kind of cool or like it came to me in the moment. And I'm like, and that's one of the things that, again, I appreciate Lynch, and I think it's fun to watch his stuff because it is just batshit crazy. It is not a movie that you can jump into and try and find, like, we have to find the symbolism of all this stuff because a lot of times there it isn't. Like, it is literally watching a surrealist payment, or painting come to life. Like, there might not be any reasoning. It might just literally be, again, cream corn. I thought it looked cool. Like, it resonated with me, so we're putting cream corn into the TV show type situation where it's like i just i don't think you can take david lynch at face value and i don't think you can look for a lot of deeper meaning and a lot of anything either it's like it is just you go into it realizing like it's gonna be an experience well and i think that's my beef 
and maybe this fits in with made for TV. Everybody loves maybe the first season of Twin Peaks, maybe mm-hmm. the first half of the first season of Twin Peaks. Yeah. And I hear a lot of people saying that it goes off the rails after that. And I guess my question is, how, how do you compare going off the rails compared to what the show's general premise is? In other words, how do you say David Lynch loses the narrative thread and goes off the rails when to me, that's where he starts. There is no zero to 60. It's we're starting at 60 and going from there. Yeah. Um, and, and the whole made for TV part, are you familiar with the actor, Robert Forrester? Uh, not by name. Uh, he's in Jackie oh, Brown. Yeah. Uh, Detective uh, McKnight. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Does he have more than one scene? Did I miss him? No, he doesn't, which uh, we're going to we're going to like we're merging into McKnight and Shining Armor territory, um, which we, we can we'll do a hard jump into that. Make sure we know. But no, apparently there was a deleted scene that was taken out where it was just one more of him and the other detective. What is it? Dumb guard um, like at the precinct talking about, I guess, the accident. But no, they, that was the only scene they had in the movie. And I wanted more of them like. It's crazy to me. David Lynch is great about creating, like, making a character that I'm invested in and want more of off of, like, two lines. Because watching those two detectives interact, I was like, I can't wait to get more of these two. Like, they're so dry, and, like, their delivery is just wonderful. I cannot wait to get more. And then they never fucking came back. (laughs) And I guess, ultimately, I don't know why, you know, we've had this discussion across other movies where... I complain about something being cut. Like, I don't think it should be cut. But then you say, well, hey, if you're going to introduce it, give us more or don't include it at all. That's mm-hmm. that's I don't understand the decision making to have Robert Forster as McKnight. Why even have that scene in here? So the, the reason I think that scene made it and I can't necessarily prove this because I tried to do a little digging as to like the symbolism to the movie and all that just to make sure that I got it correctly or what the general consensus was but they make a comment about the pearl earrings like did you see anybody else wearing pearl earrings he's like nope i think somebody might be missing right so through the rest of the movie betty is wearing a pearl necklace and that to me was a clue as to what the actual ending of this movie was going to be is i'm like okay they made a point to bring up the pearl earrings betty seems to be wearing a pearl necklace in all of her scenes or you know like there's to me there's a reason she's wearing the pearl necklace and to me that was to kind of like again lay those breadcrumbs so when you have the you know the twist at the end of the movie it's like okay no there were there were clues to lead you to that point you know that this you know at a certain point you know rita is actually betty betty's actually rita and then both of them are essentially in a manifestation of diane Yes, but we agree that Camilla is also a real person, right? Yes, yeah. Like the physical manifestation is the the actress that she had the affair with. Yes. Okay, all right. R- Rita is the version of Camille that Diane wanted. Like that dependent, like loves Betty, you know, loves her, yeah. is completely, you know, enamored with her and, and like, you know, dependent essentially on her. And I guess... 
McKnight and his partner are the detectives that are dropped in a line with the the lady that quote unquote switched apartments with mm-hmm. Naomi Watts's character. So the detectives are are mentioned in passing, but we're just we have to assume that those are the detectives that are being referred to the couple of other times in the movie, right? Yeah, that that would have been my assumption. Is that yeah that they okay. they were the detectives. Yeah, it, you know, I think Robert Forrester as an actor was hot in 99, uh, which was when this pilot was shot, I believe, because he was coming off Jackie Brown, had a kind of career resurgence. Mm-hmm. So I guess I appreciate that Lynch kept him in at least one scene to give him the credit. But again, Robert Forrester was such a phenomenal actor. Well, as procedural as it would have been, I would have liked to have seen a B plot with the detectives trying to look into this more to kind of form a connective tissue in the case. Well, and and again, maybe I'm just a basic bitch for wanting that. No, I don't think cause I wanted it too. But I think it goes back to the made for TV. Like the original premise, the first hour of this movie was basically made for a pilot to start a TV show where I'm sure that those characters would have been used a lot more. Like it's very reminiscent of some of the other, um, law enforcement that David Lynch used in like twin peaks. Like, I'm sure they would have had a much more substantial role had, you know, this been a TV show and not a movie. Because even the end of the movie, David Lynch didn't come up with until basically when he went back to to reshoot the movie, he didn't really have an end in mind. And then when he found out that ABC basically trashed all of his shit and then threw everything away and he had to go back and try and relog and find it, I guess that's when he came up for the end of the movie. And I'm like, so even when he went, that he was given the money to finish this, he didn't actually have an ending in mind. Yeah, and I guess that's ultimately why I don't jive with Lynch. I I like to think movies are a full thought out expression of the director, whereas Lynch just seems to be comfortable with hey, I woke up this morning, I had a dream about this. Wouldn't it be cool if we incorporated it in what we're shooting today? It's just not the style of filmmaking I enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he is he is definitely a, a, a weirdo. Um, but to that point, like, I mean, there's definitely a lot that I enjoy with David Lynch, but I always go into a David Lynch project knowing that it's going to be like, okay, this is just going to be like weird. It's going to be kind of weird. I'm probably not going to understand all of it. There might he might not even try and explain all of it. It might like you said just be kind of like he had a dream and he thought it looked cool, so we're going to go ahead and try and find a way to put that in film. So Yeah, so I I had a few questions and I guess they're almost pointless to ask because there's not going to be a definitive answer. No, let's do this. I want to hear your questions. Well, the the elderly couple, I guess the adoptive grandparents or whatever of Diane in Canada, they're there kind of supporting her when she does the, um, oh God, what's the thing that quote unquote gives her her break? I can't remember the term they used, the little performance she had back in Canada. Oh, it was the, the swing competition or something like that? Yeah. So I understand that that was the jumping off point. You know, she kind of got sold the Hollywood dream. And when she first arrives in Hollywood, what we, we will eventually find out that this was all just a dream, right? Mm-hmm. So the elderly couple, 
that arrive with her in Hollywood, they get in a limo while she takes the cab and the elderly couple kind of, I don't know how to describe it. They kind of, they the woman slaps the man on the knee like a few times and they smile at each other, almost like they got away with some sort of prank on Diane. Is that just Diane's insecurity and unwillingness to accept that she was a failure on her own accord, that it was just a conspiracy? Is that why the mafia is also involved? So here's the thing. That's not how I perceived that scene. I perceived that as basically them just being so overly naive that, like, she's going to make it. Like, they're just over the moon happy that she's going to be that she's going to make it as a star that they're basically they don't understand just how treacherous Hollywood is like they're just completely naive and to the point where you know in the dream sequences like Lynch takes typically makes everything like almost a caricature of itself like takes it to the nth degree where it's like over the top and I felt like that was just an expression of just how over the top like oh she's here she's automatically going to make it it's going to be wonderful like basically kind of releasing her out there, they've made it, she's made it, you know, type situation. Not that it was a they got away with murder type situation, but just that they were, you know, their blind, you know, positivity towards her her success. See, I would I would agree with you if they had all gotten in the limo together. But the elderly couple, they take the limo by themselves. If they were that happy for Diane, why are they not all riding together? That's the part that throws me off. It, well, that's where what do makes it go? a little more sinister to me. Yeah, where do they go, though? Because they don't go to the aunt's apartment. No, I mean, I don't remember seeing them again after the limo until the end of the movie. Yeah, and I agree. Like, I don't remember seeing them again until the end of the movie either. And, like, that's – I think there is a throwaway line – as to why she says she's going to take the cap and go straight to her aunts or something like that. But yeah, I my interpretation of that scene was more just them being completely naive to, you know, ultimately what was going to happen to Diane. Okay, fair. I mean, maybe Lynch doesn't even know. <laughs> it could be. Okay, but what about the mafia subplot, pressuring the director into casting a certain actress? What does that say about Diane's... I don't think psychosis is the right word, but her perception of why she failed in Hollywood. I think that was her her perception is that you don't earn the role, that it winds up being this favoritism and stuff like that. And, you know, how the roles are decided, like she was deserving of a role, but didn't get it like you could see. I think at the the end dinner thing, when she's talking about she went up with against Camille for a role and Camille got it and then basically like there was a little bit of envy there but also love for that relationship and then you know I think the what was the the name of the uh the girl she's the girl what was her name wait which girl uh the the blonde girl that winds up kissing Camille at the end but in the dream sequence she winds up getting the the role She's told that she has they uh Adam is told he has to hire her. Yeah, I thought that I thought her name oh, was Camilla. That's too. Camilla. That's Camilla. Okay, Camilla Rhodes. Yes. So Yeah, Camilla Rhodes is ultimately the woman that Diane was involved in, but in the dream Camille was the other actress. Yes, so that again 
is basically Diane feeling that she deserved the role, but she was told, like, basically Hollywood, they predetermine who's going to get what, and that she, you know, again, because you could feel the envy at that dinner, that ultimately Diane thought that she deserved the role, that she'd beat out Camilla, and then Camilla got it. Which then manifests itself again in the dream. Christ, okay, yeah. So it, at least we interpret the, the mafia subplot the same way, whereas Diane's insecurity leads her to believe, true or false, that it's got nothing to do with her talent. Exactly, yep. Which I think the whole point of this trilogy that we're doing is meta Hollywood commentary. I think that part is the most meta of the movie. That Hollywood's going to have these certain it girls and they're going to and I guess actors to an extent, too. I'm thinking of somebody like Sam Worthington or Jai Courtney, who all of a sudden get these huge pushes. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of actors in Hollywood who think they're better, but they just didn't have the marketing machine behind them. Yeah, and I'm sure there's certain a part like Adam to some degree was some expression of David Lynch and, you know, kind of being pressured, which I don't know how much David Lynch has ever been pressured. Well, I say that, but I know in Twin Peaks, David Lynch had never planned on revealing who, uh, I think it's Sarah Palmer is the uh, character's name, who killed her. And basically the studio was like, no, we've got too much. You have to reveal who it was. And then he winds up revealing who it was. And that was kind of like, I think where most people think the show jumped the shark. And then didn't he kind of try to rectify that by coming back and making a TV movie? There's yeah, there's Firewalk Fire, with me. Firewalk with me, which is actually a prequel, but yeah, I think tried to rectify some of that. And then he got to actually do like the the sequel to follow it up. But he had never he's gone on record saying he had never planned on revealing who who killed her. It wound up being the studios basically pressured him into doing that. Which, yeah, that's the pitfall of having somebody like Lynch who is just so uh, unique as a filmmaker, committed to his own vision, whether it makes sense or not. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, that just is never going to jive with big-budget studio television shows. Yep. Which, I mean, we've kind of, like, circled it now. I think we can go ahead and, and talk about Lynchpin because we've talked a lot about David Lynch at this point where I just – I think that this is a movie that could not be made through any other person's vision but David Lynch. Like, if you were to give this script to anyone else, I don't think that they could pull it off. I think it is exclusive to David Lynch and just his style of, of cinematography and just kind of narrative storytelling. I mean, you say narrative storytelling. I don't think he tells a... <laughs> A narrative, and I mean, plus, he's the sole writer for this, mm -hmm. correct? Yes. So I mean, yeah, nobody's gonna film this because nobody's gonna write this the way that he writes it. You could give a director, a hundred directors, the premise of, "Hey, just tell a story of a failed Harley Hollywood starlet." Mm -hmm. I think only Lynch would do anywhere close to this kind of movie with this level of surreal fever dream from start to finish yep and even to the point like what i did appreciate is when when the dream breaks you realize how the how good the actresses and in and, and the talent is in this because 
like the whole time everyone is just overacting the shit out of this and then like i said once it breaks at the end and you realize it's a dream all of it makes sense why you would have all of the characters just kind of all of their all of their lines are kind of again overacted and then you get to see all of them actually in a in a situation which is like oh no they're actually now they're acting as as what you would expect in a again feature length movie so i did appreciate like again you just david lynch is one of those people that his his style shines so much through like i don't want to say i don't know if he has a visual style so much as like a tim burton does but again whether you want to say narrative or deconstructed narrative or concept or whatever surrealist style david lynch has has definitely a a very niche again style about him you know and i guess i can i can appreciate that in a in a world of of marvel movies where like you might not like mulholland drive or david lynch's stuff but at least it's fucking different you know at least it's it's something to as a a palate cleanser right uh yeah i i can't say too much there because my time capsule is dedicated to the year this movie came out, which is 2001. And I think we can definitely get into the difference between Lynch and where Hollywood was going at that point. Mm -hmm. So teaser for later. So I'm interested to know LA noir. What was, what was that about? Um, so this is a little bit meta, the person who recommended this movie absolutely loves it, but he has a long running knowledge of cinema. I'm talking back to like the forties Uh huh. and he's a big fan of classic Hollywood. All right. I think your enjoyment of classic Hollywood cinema runs parallel to how much you'll actually enjoy this movie and how much you'll appreciate the little Easter eggs. As we've discussed on previous episodes, Brett, (laughs) the professionals in particular, for the most part, I hate old movies. Yeah. Pre-Jaws. So lots of the fifties, sixties, Hollywood prestige. That's kind of paid homage to in this movie is lost on me. Well, hell, I mean, sunset Boulevard. I, I was, I assume a huge influence of this movie. Which was nineteen fifty. It's just a road. <laughs> yeah, that is for some reason brought up many times in this movie. <laughs> many times. Why? Why is Sunset Boulevard keep coming up? <laughs> so yeah, I think Lynch is gonna beat you at the level that you're prepared to meet him at. If you don't have the love of classic Hollywood cinema a lot of this is going to be lost on you. It sounds like you have a little bit more love than me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, can you expound on L.A. Noir at all on your own right? I mean, I'm not sure I'd be able to jump into a whole lot of details. Like, I definitely feel like Sunset Boulevard, I picked up not even the when he the you know you do the the shot of sunset boulevard like even before that like how it was shot i'm like okay i feel like this movie is going to be like a a thriller like a sunset boulevard like i was ready for the the same kind of ending that happens in sunset boulevard so i was prepared for that um i know in doing a little bit of research i guess the wizard of oz was kind of an influence for him on this and i i can understand that again i'm sure you've seen wizard of oz though right I have. Okay. So, you know, the the whole dream thing, like, that makes sense afterward that, you know, he it's kind of a much darker spin on The Wizard of Oz. And then, you know, 
the same actors playing multiple roles. So you can kind of see how that meshes in and out. But I mean, to go into any kind of hardcore, like L.A. Noir type stuff, like I don't know if I would have a whole lot. I know that, you know, the I'm pretty sure that when Adam smashes the the windshield of the mafia car, I'm pretty sure that's a callback to Jack Nicholson because he did that one time. Um, I did think it was in Chinatown. Yeah, I I can't. I thought it was weird that Adam had the driver or it wasn't a driver. It was a wedge on the table. And it's one of those things where I'm like, well, but it's a, it's a David Lynch movie. Like, I guess it, why, why wouldn't he just have a golf club for some reason on the table? But apparently that was another deleted scene where Adam came straight from a golf course. And that's why he was, he had the, the golf club with him. And I'm like, that's some context. I feel like that could have been added. Like, but again, David Lynch doesn't give a shit. Cause like in a David Lynch movie, if a character is just walking around with a golf club, you don't question it. He's just got a golf club for some reason. Yeah, and apparently you enjoy that kind of stuff a lot more than me. Again, I think it's one of those, it's a breath of fresh air. Like, I would not want to, like, Desert Island have, you know, David Lynch's filmography. That would get real fucking old for me. But, again, from time to time, yeah. Like, I, I admittedly, I'm a huge fan of, of Twin Peaks. Hell, I, my wife went as Log Lady one year for Halloween. Like, we enjoyed how weird that show was. But, again, I think there's a certain point with David Lynch. Like, I don't – I know to turn my brain off. Like, when a lot of people talk about a mindless popcorn movie, those are the movies I typically kind of overanalyze and, like, want to shit all over. I turn my mind off when I watch a David Lynch movie, though, or a TV show because I'm like, I – he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, let alone me trying to figure it out. Like, I'm just in for the ride. And yes, occasionally I, you know, I like to, to strap into a little bit of crazy and, and just enjoy it. Yeah, and I guess my crazy skews towards something like Total Recall, where mm. for whatever reason, we're just going to have Arnold use somebody as a meat shield. <laughs> Whereas with Lynch, I, I respect the skill level. There is not a director alive or deceased, in my opinion, that can portray the non-linear, nonsensical sense of a dream. Like the best way I can describe it is the way Lynch makes movies. He keeps me in the feeling that I have. I don't know if you ever have a really vivid dream, Brett. Mm -hmm. And that first like 30 seconds, you wake up and try to digest what you just dreamt. And like 60% of it makes sense, even though like 90% made sense while you were asleep. Mm -hmm. But the longer you stay awake, the, the more things fall apart. Yeah. Lynch captures that on film. And, and I can't think of another director who can do it. In fact, this might be a hot take. And I know I'm going all over the place. I would much rather have Lynch direct the script to Inception than Christopher Nolan. Oh, Wow. God, could you uh, just imagine because my a complaint Lynch? about Inception was for a dream world, it seems awfully mechanical and straightforward, A to B, B to C. Whereas Lynch actually makes me feel like I might be asleep when I'm watching an actor using prosthetics so that his head looks abnormally small. <laughs> don't know have don't have a clue why that fucking character's in this movie. I recognize him from Twin Peaks as well, but mm -hmm. I think Lynch, I would much rather see him as a director and not a writer, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. But even, again, there's just, there's so much to unpack in everything he does. And like I said, and so much of it seems to not matter. Like, 
the shot when they're when they're doing the phone calls, right? It's like we can't find the girl, and then it goes to the back of the guy's head, and you never see his head. He's just a mysterious figure on the phone, and then it calls like that dingy apartment, and it's like there's absolutely it makes no fucking sense, but there's that fucking circular light that is just it's attached to the phone, and that's it, just for that shot. I'm like. Anyone else, I would complain, like, well, this is such a weird shot, but, like, I don't know why I give David Lynch the benefit of the doubt. I'm like, no, he's just a weird dude. I'm like, but I love that. I thought that was such a crazy awesome shot. Like, I, it sticks out in my mind so much because I'm like, it's there's so much with the color and the texture of the scene and the, the way the light is structured versus, the again, that dingy phone and the hand just, you know, comes off of the screen and picks it up. I'm like, there's just so, again... When he really gets into those sequences, like there's just so much to unpack and nothing to unpack at the same time. And I don't know why I just I wind up lo- eating it all up. I don't I I can't put into words why I enjoy it so much, but I do. Uh, that might lead us into th- and this is going to be your segment because I have questions. I have even more questions. Mm hmm. One of your five points was about the use of color, I believe blue specifically in this movie. Yes. Okay. Uh, I understand the blue key. What's the blue box? So my interpretation of it, the, the blue, and he does this in some of his like blue velvet. And even I believe in twin peaks, I remember like he likes to use blue as a color for suspense And the reason I want to bring this up is it's so weird because when you think about color theory, blue is not a color that usually invokes that kind of emotion. Like he's using like, you know, when they're in the uh, Club Silencio and it's like the blue flashing lights. And like typically that's not a color that you would use to create like weird, like it'd be like a red or something like that that you would use to create like suspense or kind of uneasiness. But blue is typically a color used as a, as a calming method or something to give you like, uh, to, to kind of ground you or give you comfort. And it's just David Lynch is notorious for using blue basically to illustrate like, again, almost stress points. So that's just blue throughout the movie. You know, again, the flashing light, the blue key, the blue box, all of that goes back to like, those are like the suppressed memories. Like those are the like moments of anxiety and ultimately, you know, Rita unlocks it to reveal that it's actually Diane and all that. But, like, that's, again, using blue throughout this movie. It winds up being, like, these these tension points. He uses the color blue, which is just, again, weird to me. Because, again, if you look at color theory, that's not the color you would typically use to convey that emotion to your audience. But yet, he's notorious for doing it. So... Again, Using a blue box, it's like subversion. it's like, yeah, exactly. The blue box, like you don't look at that blue box and feel uncomfortable because again, it's just it's a it's a very nice blue, like it's a, it's a calming blue, and that's the color he's used to illustrate or to create tension. And it is, it's just it's interesting that that's the color that he would that he gravitates towards. So, the blue box. You're just saying that that's an interesting color to choose for something to elicit tension, the mm-hmm. the unlocking of the box. Yeah. 
Like, there's a mystery, what's in the box? Like, and instead of creating some kind of tension by making, like, a red box, like, that's what you would typically expect that, like, some, again, a bright, vibrant color, something passionate or something like that. He uses a very muted blue. Uh, I think I just had an epiphany. <laughs> and I can point to why I both love David Lynch and hate David Lynch. <laughs> Because <laughs> okay. the shit you just described to me, you know what it sounds like to me? What's that? J.J. Abrams' mystery box. Okay. Whereas Abrams going to go to the trouble to try to explain the box at the end. And the explanation is always worse than the setup. Uh, obviously, Lost is the prime example when they were building intrigue, there was nothing better. When they were trying to pay off intrigue, it was like an eye roll festival. To me, removing all the technical elements, the way that he can compose a shot and create dread. Narratively, David Lynch is just the first three seasons of Lost, but he doesn't have to pay anything off, and then he can just be hailed as a genius as he rides <laughs> off into the sunset. Yeah, and that pisses me off. Like I don't, I don't understand why you can be held in the respect that Lynch is if you don't actually pay anything off. I mean, you did some research on this movie and i'm sure did it did it lead you to the maholland drive website that's dedicated to this with all the theories oh no oh brett there is a website out there i think it's like maholland see but and that's that's why i get into like this is like you're getting into conspiracy theory like levels when you're trying to to cut apart David, like if you're going to, if anybody's going to go and try and get a David Lynch movie and figure out themes, it's going to have to be like a psychiatrist or something like that. Like, because it's, you're, you're trying to basically take apart David Lynch when you're making the movie, as opposed to trying to take apart a movie. I'm like, and I just, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm just going to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. I guess I just can't enjoy it though, because it, like you said, you have to have a psychiatrist to break this stuff down. If you're telling me that this is what David Lynch does as self-therapy, good for him. I don't understand why he's lauded as a genius for it. Here's a here's a really good example of when I realized, okay, David Lynch is just fucking out there, right? So in Twin Peaks, there's a there's a character who basically their soul gets trapped in a hotel room, right? And the way that it is illustrated is essential, and it's not just a hotel room. Their face is superimposed over the knob of a like a a bedside drawer, and that's it. like there's no explanation. It never is brought back up in the rest of the show. Like it never is revealed why their soul is basically trapped in the knob of a drawer. Like it's just like that's this way he decided to do the shot was just he superimposed their face on a knob and then it faded out and you're just like what the fuck is happening and again it's just i don't know these are just fun fever dream things for me like we're just like 
you can't possibly come up for an explanation as to why that just happened. It's just such a great conversation. Like, I enjoy talking about this stuff so much because, again, you could come up with a thousand different reasons what the fuck that meant, but, like, none of them mean anything. Like, again, David Lynch probably just had a day where he's like, I had a dream where my wife got stuck in a knob, so I decided to put it into the movie. You're like, okay, cool. That's just, that's how it happened. <laughs> yeah, I... I guess I push back on finding it enjoyable because if it can mean anything and nothing at the same time, I live in reality. I, I'm aware that not everything has a meaning or a significance. I, I don't necessarily want to see that for my art. I guess that's why I probably appreciate disciples of Lynch more than I do Lynch. Mm. I'm thinking of probably – Oddly enough, Justin Thoreau and The Leftovers. Yeah. That show walks the tightrope of giving you some out there shit, but we're going to at least try to give you some explanation some of the time. And I believe you're probably very much in line with Roger Ebert because I believe he does like he loves this movie. But I think for the most part, he can't stand David Lynch for a very like he does not like his surrealist style. He just doesn't get into it. Yeah, I, I, again, I just if you if you give a thousand different explanations and any of them could be right, I'm kind of like you're kind of just throwing shit at a canvas and people are too intimidating to really try to tear it apart as a narrative. And I guess if you're telling me it's not a narrative, it's just an experience. I would just prefer to drive to the desert and take mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's how I approach a, a David Lynch project is I don't expect a lot of narrative. I just, again, expect it to be like it's walking through a fun, uh, the funhouse mirrors. Like it's just it's going to be wacky and weird and you're going to see like angles of shit that you didn't think of. But again, I think tech on a technical level, like some of the shots that he frames, like they're just they're really cool, awesome shots, like, and I enjoy them. Um, but yeah, I, I would say a lot of what Lynch does doesn't make sense. And I guess maybe that's where I give him the benefit of the doubt. And I don't, you know, all his disciples, whether I'm one or not, or, you know, whether I'm justifying their actions or they'll completely hate me for saying this, like, maybe that's why I enjoy Lynch is because a lot of people I feel like do wacky weird shit, but they think they have a meaning at the end. And then at the end, I'm like, no, it didn't like it didn't mean anything or your, you know, your execution was terrible if you were trying to be weird or avant garde. Whereas I just feel like David Lynch is just weird and avant garde. So, again, it's just it's 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 getting on a carnival ride to me. Like, I'm just enjoying the ride. I'm not expecting to be told a story, you know, of with the ups and downs. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Lynch is never going to trick you. He's not trying to do anything other than what he loves to do. Um, yeah, I guess I, I probably set myself up for failure by just attaching to that this is his most accessible film. <laughs> right. I mean, because ultimately there is no accessible Lynch film, which – I'm not surprised that this movie has broken our format completely, but I have one more question for you. Uh-huh. The Hitman. Okay, I'm glad. I was actually... that's This is our last segment. Uh, so, McKnight in Shining Armor, 
this is just a love letter to all of the characters that didn't get a lot of screen time that I just wanted to talk about. Like the detectives, we kind of hit on them earlier. I absolutely, I wanted more of their interaction and what they were doing, but the hitman was definitely somebody I wanted to bring up. So hit me, talk to me about the hitman. Well, my first question, Brad is, do you recognize the actor playing the hitman? Well, absolutely. It's Jacob. Tell the audience. It's Jacob from uh, Lost. It's Jacob from Lost. I have to assume that was not a coincidence uh, on, on the part of Lindelof casting him. Yeah, it, I would assume that it's one of those like it was a love letter to this stuff. What's the point of portraying him as so incompetent? So here's what I thought. Is, was, this is Betty's dream or excuse me. But he's the only character who was the same in her dream and in real life. And I thought that was I figured that was what they were trying to do when they gave him two different colored eyes in the dream and then in reality he didn't is it was basically symbolizing like that was uh, almost to bring it back to law sorry if anybody hasn't watched lost you there, there's a lot of references in this episode that you're probably not going to get um but desmond like her constant the hitman was her constant because in the dream sequence he was a hitman and in reality he was a hitman right uh, okay go on him being incompetent, I actually wanted to ask you, do you think him killing three people implies that he actually killed, like he didn't just kill Camilla, that he wound up killing more than one person and that also added to the guilt that she had? Because to me, there was no other reason like to have that scene where it's just like, oh, uh, he just continued to fuck stuff up unless I'm like, oh, this is like, again, if we're going to, now we realize who he is and what he did in reality was just a continuation of like did he kill like are she thinking he's responsible for the deaths of multiple people including maybe herself because the guilt kills her is it one of the things he went to kill camilla and winds up killing two other people on accident maybe adam and the you know the other actress who they were having the affair with like to me and again this is the thing we're like we can theorize with david lynch but the fact of the matter is he probably just thought it was funny i don't know <laughs> so well Here's what I would like to know, and I think we have a way to find out. Was the hitman also in the TV pilot? I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know if he was or not. Because I'm I think remember- that would be... Yeah. we. If he I mean- only shot stuff for the movie, then I think him fucking up has to be more intentional. Let us find out. Did you also notice when he's talking to, I don't know if she's, I assume she's supposed to be a prostitute outside of the uh, the diner that um, the bruise on her arm, just again, the subtle details that they put into the, uh, the, the characters. Uh, sorry, I'm just checking the TV movie real quick. As am I. But, uh, we haven't even mentioned Billy yeah, Ray Cyrus. No, he was. Yet. He was as Joe Messing. He was in the TV movie. Yeah, Mark Pellegrino. He was. Yeah. See, I don't. But I again, get that even less than I did before. But again, here's the thing. I'm sure when he put him in the TV show, he had more plans on that character. What he was gonna like that was going to be a character who fucked up and did a lot throughout the series, and then it wound up being like two years later you decide to finish the movie and you wind up throwing the hit like he winds up being the hitman because again david lynch didn't know that was the end of the movie right until almost two years later and that's when he decided 
what the end of the movie was, which I assume the entire end of the movie was her waking up and putting a hit out on Camilla and all that. So that's when he brings that hitman back. So that was probably one of those things where like, well, I have a hitman. We'll just use the same hitman and him having two different colors. eyes. Again, I'm trying to put like references to it at that point. Again, it was probably just a weird character design for David Lynch to have him have two different colored eyes because that's definitely a David Lynch type thing. And this is where I guess when I brought up Cult of Kubrick, where I had questions about intentionality. Mm -hmm. You could tell me that David Lynch shot the pilot with the, the bumbling hitman. And there was some level of plan to explain why he was so bumbling and he killed, you know, two additional people beyond his target to get this black book. Which I'm assuming he's getting the black book to help him assassinate Camille. Is that right? Would you say? I don't know, because we don't know again, <laughs> because this was piecemealed together. No idea what the black book was going to be used for, because as far as I was concerned, that was in the dream sequence. The black book. I thought was going to wind up being something more like was probably going to pay off in a different way or not pay off at all. Like it did in the movie. Like that was just the hitman was there to get the black book. So I guess that's my, what my, my problem is. Let's say this French studio gave David Lynch enough money to shoot for an additional three weeks with Naomi Watts and the principal cast. I'm wondering if there just wasn't enough footage, they couldn't shoot enough additional content to remove the bumbling hitman. Hey, we just have to use him fucking up and killing two innocent people and then reinsert that hitman character to the end of the movie where his competence is not questioned as much. He's he he successfully kills her ex-lover because of the blue key showing up. Mm -hmm. So again, it's hard to discern whether this was an intentional choice and what you're saying, the deeper reading, like maybe this implies that he fucked up and killed additional people. And that's why Diane ultimately kills herself at the end. Or is it just, this was going to be a little more comedic, but the pilot didn't get picked up. And two years later, Hey, Mark Pellegrino's available. Let's bring him back. If I had to put money on one or the other, it would be that David, that, that character got repurposed, that that was not the original intent of Pellegrino's character. And I agree. I therefore think it's, it's very problematic to include his two scenes as they stand. Yeah, because honestly, you could have just had him at the end. You didn't need the bumbling, the, the dream sequence scene. If you just brought a hitman into the end that described, I'm going to give you a blue key, like, that would have been enough. You didn't need any more of him earlier in the movie to establish him. I agree, because ultimately, we don't get much more other than that one comedic scene. There's that, Whereas, and there's the one where he's, he's talking to the prostitute, and who's he looking for? He's talking oh, I, to the girl and the other remember. guy outside of the Dickies restaurant, and then it cuts again. And I don't even remember what that conversation was. Same. I don't remember that conversation at all. Because I think it's – I think he's supposed to be looking for Rita because they say the girl's missing, and because they don't have the body, he was hired to go and try and find, you know, Rita in the dream sequence. Okay, that makes sense. 
All right, so we've talked about the hitman. Another reason he doesn't make sense to me is because the director, Adam, in Diane's fantasy or her dream, Adam seems to be suffering at every turn. Uh, ultimately, and I, I interpret it because he is the one that, I guess, quote unquote, stole Camilla away from Diane, mm -hmm. at least in her view. Yeah. So she's got some sort of like sense for justice and retribution in the dream. That's why he gets Adam gets intimidated by the cowboy. Uh, his wife's cheating on him. I can understand all of that as her almost revenge fantasy at, at how Hollywood has wronged her. Mm -hmm. That's why the hitman stuff makes even less sense. Because everything that happens to Adam, I can see through the lens of Diane being scorned. That tracks to me. That feels intentional, whereas the, the hitman just does not. Well, again, it comes back to if we're going to accept the reason his eyes are different colors or because he is the constant between reality and um, the dream, to me, the hitman would essentially wind up being like he is pursuing Rita basically to bring Diane back to the real world. Like he's again, he's, he's basically merging the two worlds together. So essentially because he exists in both because he was hired to kill Camilla in the real world, he is now still hired to kill Rita in the dream world. Like that is the, the constant that Diane can't escape. Is it really portrayed that he's going after Rita or is that your interpretation though? That's my interpretation. Cause again, it, it's after the sequence of the whole, like the girl's missing, we have to find the girl and all that. That's when he, to me is the next logical step of that is they've hired somebody to go and find her. Okay. Okay. I, it's a stretch, but I can believe that. So, did, were there any other characters that you wanted to, to kind of bring up? I mean, I don't know if the cowboy needs to be brought up or not. He he made a, an appearance in the uh, the opening. Again, a weird David Lynch style character. Uh, the only thing I'll mention about the cowboy, and I found this out through research. Apparently, he was kind of a last minute get that Lynch really wanted. Mm -hmm. And they literally tacked his lines onto Justin Thoreau so that he could read them in the scene. <laughs> and yet that scene, that's my favorite scene of the movie by far. Yeah. But yeah, I wonder if that stiff delivery was intentional or is that just him reading off the cue card and that's why it sounds that way. But again, that's why I love and hate Lynch is because you can't ever tell what's intentional and what was a happy accident. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, ain't that the truth? All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up for, for I think, five points. I think we can jump into some Chop Shop. Um, are you ready for some Chop Shop? It was a hell of a challenge for me this week, but I'm ready.
All right. So this week I felt I had finally been gifted um, a decent genre from the Chop Shop Gods because I got miniseries, which I did not think was going to be that difficult to build this out to. I thought pretty much anything else would have been a fucking nightmare. Um, at the top of that list was probably family friendly or comedy. Um, and you got family friendly. So I, uh, yeah, I think yours is going to be a little more in depth just by the nature of what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, so I can get my family friendly out of the way first, if, if that's okay with you. Let's do it. Let's hear your family friendly. <laughs> it's a comedy. Cause I'm just thinking about you having to do this. Uh, Family-friendly Mulholland Drive. Let's hear it. Yeah, side note, I feel like this is punishment for me making fun of you having to make uh, an end-of-the-world Adam McKay film into family-friendly. But you did it, so hopefully uh, I can pull it off as well. Uh, so much like in this movie, uh, Diane, played by Naomi Watts, uh, she's going to be moving to L.A., uh, but in this case, she's there to take care of her Aunt Ruth. Uh, her Aunt Ruth herself had a decent career in Hollywood in the 50s and 60s and has lived in L.A. ever since, kind of working sparingly, you know, sitcom here and there, commercial. Uh, but she's getting up there in years and uh, can no longer take care of her Hollywood house by herself. So she invites Diane to move out to L.A. Uh, because Diane wants to be an actress, uh, but she can also help take care of Ruth uh, around the house so that she doesn't have to go to retirement home. Uh, so Diane, the aspiring actress, uh, she's going to show up and move in uh, with Ruth. Uh, this is family friendly, so some hijinks are going to ensue. You know, younger Diane living with her elderly aunt. They're going to have to learn to live under run Ruth together. Um, I'm thinking some real general stuff. Someone's hogging the shower. Uh, Ruth is going to be kind of a neat freak, uh, and Diane's going to be kind of a slob, and she's going to be appalled at that that slobby lifestyle, calling it the opposite of Hollywood glamour. Um, Diane's going to struggle a little bit in Hollywood. She's going to go to some auditions and kind of fail. And the tension at the house is going to kind of come to a head and Diane's going to ask her aunt about kind of the glory days of her career. You know, give me some Hollywood stories. You know, make me believe in this town and, and want to stay out here. So Ruth will kind of be invigorated by getting to relive her career. Um, you know, relaying old stories to Diane about the stars she's made and her experiences on set. Uh, and this is going to cause them to bond. We'll have... Uh, you know, montages of Diane listening to her, her aunt's stories about Hollywood. Um, and each time these old stories are depicted, we're going to have Naomi Watts playing her aunt. We're going to have Diane playing her aunt in these flashbacks. So the aunt's going to be telling the stories, but the audience is going to see it through the eyes of Diane portraying these classic roles. Um, in kind of the B plot to this movie, uh, do you remember Louise, the, the landlord? Uh-huh. 
Falco? You know, she's concerned about the dog shit at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, she's very much going to be in this movie as well. She's going to be the eccentric landlord, uh, and she's going to have some sort of old woman rivalry with Aunt Ruth. They don't get along, even though Aunt Ruth is a tenant of Louise. That yeah, they're gonna they're gonna have problems. Louise is gonna have those HOA vibes that you love so much, Brad. Like mm. she's gonna bitch about. You know, the plants that Ruth keeps in her windowsill and how they're unseemly, etc. She painted her door without permission. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Yep. So through Ruth's stories, we're going to find out that Louise was also an actress back in the glory days, but she was a much lesser known actress. And it turns out that once Ruth is a little more comfortable with Diane... She reveals that Louise and herself were lovers back in the day. Uh, But, of course, Hollywood in the 50s and 60s, they were not going to accept two lesbians. So they hid their love, and eventually that kind of fell apart. Uh, Both women went on to marry men, and both were later widowed, which leads them to their current circumstance. Um, And slowly but surely, with the encouragement of Diane— the relationship between Ruth and Louise kind of thaws. Um, Diane's going to be thrilled for her aunt and Louise as they kind of build that bond that they had, you know, 50 years ago. Uh, but again, Diane is is struggling. She's trying to cope with her career, trying to get off the ground, and it's been a failure to this point. And, you know, we'll see Diane with some failed auditions. And now the connective tissue in the middle is where I'm going to need some help, but I want to tell you how I want to end this movie, Brett. Okay. Uh, Obviously, since this is family-friendly, we can't have Diane kill herself. Um, But she's going to be kind of close to that. At least she wants to leave Hollywood. Okay. Uh, And so we're going to have an on... Excuse me. A montage with uh, her aunt and Louise... And they're kind of going through their old stuff that's been boxed up in storage. They've got old scripts. They've got uh, journal entries that they both made about what was going on in Hollywood and and their love affair and how they couldn't be together. Uh, There's going to be pictures from their careers. Just a a treasure trove of old memorabilia from from a, a bygone era in Hollywood. And this is going to reinvigorate and inspire Diane And the movie is going to end with a flash forward where Diane will be starring in a TV show inspired by old Hollywood. The show will be executive produced and written by Ruth and Louise. And our movie is going to end with the director calling action on the first day of shooting where Diane, much like in the flashbacks we've already seen, is playing a fictionalized version of her aunt's. And we kind of realize that Diane's going to find her way in Hollywood through the help of her aunt. And uh, Louise and uh, Ruth are going to rekindle the relationship. They're too old to be, you know, you know, bumping uglies. Uh, But they're going to have a newfound bond. So basically these three women are going to help usher in a new era of Hollywood to kind of expose how women have been mistreated. And the show is going to be a big hit, family friendly, 
everybody loves each other and everybody's successful. Roll credits. Okay. So yeah, happy ending. Diane has her hit TV show. Louise and Ruth get to rekindle a relationship 50 years in the making and become success successful in Hollywood a second time around. So I got it. I got it for you. Here's hey. here's here's your core, your connective tissue. Diane is going to wind up getting an audition, all right? She's super excited about. Um at a certain point, I think Louise and Ruth are going to be fighting and Diane is going to say something about like she's going to get frustrated because she's trying to practice her lines and they're they're disrupting her and she's going to like name drop maybe a producer, you know, or something like that that she's going to audition for and Ruth and Louise are going to have a a look cuz they're going to realize maybe he's he's kind of a shady guy. They're going to both so this is going to unite and try and di- tell Diane she shouldn't audition for that role, that it's not going to be like right. Like this is a Harvey Weinstein yeah, type we're, situation? Yeah, we're, we're a family-friendly Harvey Weinstein, right? As, as, as PG as <laughs> okay. we can keep it, right? Diane is not going to listen to them, right? And she's going to go to the audition. And we're going to imply as much as we can that the producer, director, whatever it is, old, old asshole from, from the old days tries to kind of take advantage of her like persuade her to do something she doesn't want to do and she's going to break down and that's going to be the moment where she like wants to give up on hollywood she's over it like this town is disgusting and awful she's going to come back this is when ruth and louise are going to have an opportunity to realize to bond to tell their story again the final the the uglier side of hollywood that they never got a chance to tell diane she's going to become empowered by it realize that their story needs to be told and then that's how we're now going to have the montage of them getting together and being happy and then them being able to create the movie at the end oh god damn well done well done that's what i needed sir yep so i like it so yeah i mean shockingly uplifting for the movie we actually got this week yeah for sure for sure well there you go that's what i had i look forward to many series from you what do you got all right so i had to go a little lynch here right and i had to get conceptual and i'm trying to figure out how i should describe this so it makes sense all right um do you know the like the numbers at the beginning of old films with those like they're called film heads and it's basically like it told the projectionist how many like feet or like of film there were when they were assembling it together. So it was like it'll count down from like eight, seven, six, five, four, oh, three. Yeah, 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 absolutely. All right. So each episode of my miniseries is going to end. No, it's going to sorry begin with one of those numbers counting down. And then it'll basically be the title of the episode, the number countdown, and then the episode will start. All right. It'll be very relevant at the end while I explain that. So we start with our first episode, and it starts with the number eight. Bloop. All right. Welcome to. So LA. it's not a countdown. In the first episode, we're only going to get the number eight. We're just going to get the number eight. Each episode oh, has gotcha. one number. Yep. Welcome to LA. 
The series opens with a shot of clouds quickly rushing by and a camera pans back into an airplane where Betty, Becky is what I have written in my notes for some reason, (laughs) where Betty is sitting with her parents. The three reminisce about Betty's childhood and how they're so proud that she's following her dreams. The three land and they say their goodbyes. Her parents are on a layover and continuing to uh, Zawaneho. Do you know what that is? That what's a that's a reference to? No. Zwaneho. Uh that is the town that Andy Dufresne wants to go to in the Shawshank Redemption. Because ah, okay. it's a little Mexican okay. it's a Mexican city on the Pacific. And you know what the Mexicans say about the Pacific? There's no memories. So, little Easter egg there. And how they wish she was coming with them. The camera cuts. Oh, I forgot to preference this. I've changed this into like a true crime style miniseries. That's going to be very relevant to this next part. So the camera cuts to Detective McKnight because I said I wanted more of him. Describing Betty as a young woman full of potential and wonder. Not understanding that the ghosts of L.A. could haunt her. Got back. Betty leaves to the airport and arrives at her aunt's home. Unpacks and meets her neighbors. She's delighted at the place and can't stop talking about following her dreams. And an interview with McKnight starts, and his audio is pro- uh, projected or overlaid over Betty as she explores the rest of the apartment. She comes across a beautiful woman lying naked in the floor of a shower. She co- the woman looks confused and lost. McKnight says, who or what she found next would change the course of her story forever. End of the episode. Next episode, seven. Bloop. We don't stop here. We open with McKnight describing the beautiful woman from the previous episode, voiceover as she sits in front of a vanity putting makeup on and preparing for what looks like an eventful night as she's getting ready we see her put on a pearl uh, put a uh, put on a pair of pearl earrings the phone rings basically transitioning off of mcknight um and into the rest of the story letting her know that her ride is here the scene cuts and it's betty getting ready for her flight the previous day she's talking to her aunt on the phone her aunt is giving her instructions on how to get there Uh, and who some of the tenants are. After the phone call ends, we cut back to the woman now in the back of the limo. As they continue to drive up the winding road, the woman talks about when she first came to Hollywood and how if you're not careful, the town will eat you alive. As she starts to talk about a movie that she's about to star in, the car comes to a stop. She shouts, we don't stop here, when the driver pulls out a gun. Detective McKnight narrates the next course of events. As the hitman starts to pull the trigger, a drunk driver slams into the car. The woman escapes, unaware of who she is, and moves towards the city where she sneaks into Betty's aunt's apartment. The episode ends with Detective McKnight and uh, Domgard examining the wreckage of the vehicle. Six. Bloop. Keep an open mind. We open where the first episode ends. Betty helps Rita as the two begin to try and figure out who she is and where she came from. Rita describes what little she can remember, and Betty assumes that she must have been in an accident based on injuries. They go through her purse and find the money in the blue key, but the two are interrupted when someone bangs on the door. When Betty goes to answer, there's no one there, but a newspaper is on the floor wrapped with a blue string sitting at the door with the headline about the accident. The two go to the diner, where Betty calls the police to inquire about the accident on Mulholland Drive. When they ask her name, a man starts banging on the glass, much like banging on a door, of the restaurant and shouts that he needs to speak with her. Startled, Betty hangs up the phone and grabs Rita. The two enter the diner, but the man is gone. They decide to get something to eat when Rita is triggered by Diane's name tag. 
the waitress. We cut to Detective Domgard, introducing the domestic dispute from Director Adam. He goes on to describe. Uh, uh, he goes on to describe showing uh, up at Adam's house and taking notes. His wife or girlfriend mentions Cynthia, whom Doom, uh, Domgard calls. Cynthia begins to describe what happened to Adam, and we get a flashback to Adam's meeting with the execs. It is implied that they are recasting due to the actor due to an actress's death, but it's never specifically mentioned who. Next, we have Detective McKnight describing Betty leaving to uh, leaving to take an audition. The episode ends with Betty being introduced to Adam on set, which we didn't get a chance to talk about. Like that scene was fucking crazy, right? Where she auditions. Oh my god, that's. I can't imagine watching that scene back in the day and realizing Naomi Watts is going to be a superstar. Yeah. Holy fuck, that was great. Um, five. Bloop. She's the girl. Betty is introduced to Adam in additions for the part in his movie. Adam then allows Camilla Rode to audition before telling Betty that she's got the part. Betty is elite, er, uh, elated and rushes back to read it to help her track down more of her past. After Betty leaves, Adam is told that that was a mistake. Later that night, he is visited by the cowboy on set. No one else is there, but it basically repeats the same situation that happened in the, um, the movie. We cut to Detective Domgard describing Adam calling Betty and telling her she didn't actually get the part. The studio had a change of heart. McKnight is now sitting with him and says that uh, that's enough to shake up anyone and make you want to give up on your dream. But Betty seemed determined. Betty and Rita visit Diane's apartment. While the two are investigating, the phone rings and goes to the messenger. The voice on the recorder sounds vaguely like McKnight, explaining that he has some questions for Diane and he'd like to come by and see her. The episode ends with Rita screaming and Betty running into the room to see the body on the bed. Four. Bloop. It's a hit. As Betty tries to comfort Rita, it calls attention to a stranger who is hiding outside the apartment. The man begins to chase them, and they are forced to run. Betty suggests that they return to the movie set, as she wants to know why the studio had changed their heart. When the, the two arrive, Adam recognizes Rita and is ecstatic that they no longer need to recast the movie, and can resume it as is. Rita still doesn't remember anything, and Betty offers to take her back to the apartment so they can process the information. Betty is now even more invested in Rita because she's a successful movie star. Her feelings become known, and the two women confess that they have feelings for each other but they're not sure what those feelings are. As they attempt to explore, a heavy knock is heard on the door. That's another thing we didn't discuss. That sex scene came out of fucking nowhere in, that, in the movie. Yeah. I, it was a little bit jarring, and I'm assuming that at the time of its release, that was a big buzzworthy topic. Uh, yeah, so funny enough, with the DVD release, Lynch actually requested that they blur out um, the act actress's vagina. Uh, what is it? Laura Haring. Because he found out that people were taking screenshots of it and putting pictures online. And he didn't. He thought that that was like wrong. So he actually asked them to fix it so that people couldn't do that anymore. I respect that. I think that's an also an interesting commentary on Lynch is that it never would have occurred to him that people would use his art in mm -hmm. such a way, which I think is like you said, you may not love Lynch, but you have to appreciate the sensibility that he brings to filmmaking, mm -hmm. including that. Yep. 
Um, so back on, uh, Detective Domgarden now describes the apartment, or uh, as they attempt to explore, a heavy knock is heard on the door. Detective Domgarden now describes the apartment with footage of what looks like a struggle. He describes that a hitman must have followed them back, and the two fought and escaped. After describing the scene, he says the next time that they were seen was at a niche club downtown. His voiceover is accompanied by the hitman chasing them into an alley where they disappear to Club Silencio. Three. Silencio. Betty and Rita are hiding in Club Silencio when McKnight starts to narrate over the two. He describes the couple trying to hide from the spotlight and that they were starting to attract the wrong kind of attention. Betty and Rita watch the show as it unfolds. The two find the blue box and return to the apartment. Betty tries to convince Rita not to open the box, that maybe they should just see where the relationship goes, that opening the box could change everything. Rita insists that she needs to know, and Betty storms off. The detectives now, voicing over in stereo, say that it did change things, didn't it, Rita? They start to narrate Rita's actions, breaking the fourth wall, as she grabs the key, puts it into the slot, and twists. With each twist, a pounding of what sounds like a door can be heard. Rita opens the blue box and looks inside. It appears to be a mirror, and when the camera pans back, Betty slash Diane is holding the blue box. Two. Bloop. Tenant 12 knocks on the door, uh, and a disheveled Diane opens it. The woman says it's been three weeks now, and she needs to get a hold of herself. Diane tells her that she doesn't know what she's talking about, and then uh, the, the change in scenery sh or, but a change in scenery should help her. As Diane looks around the apartment, she is haunted by figures of her past, which begin to piece together what actually happened. Uh, the show ends with Diane Selwyn fighting her demons, being visited by uh, her caretakers who, are, uh, who were so happy for her. The sil to silence the voices, she takes a handful of sleeping pills and collapses onto her bed. From her perspective, you see her eyes begin to close and flashes of light as clouds begin to cover her vision, and the first shot of the film is overlaid and plays out. That's the end. Oh, I, I knew it. I knew that's exactly <laughs> where you were going. So the reason it goes, it counts down from eight to two, is in those old numbers, it never counts down to one or zero because two was an indication that the movie was going to start and then that's when they would pull up the card. So that's why it ends at two is basically it restarts the whole thing. It becomes a cycle. <laughs> yeah, the show's going to begin again. Mm-hmm. So... I'm sure I could have gotten into a lot more detail with some of the stuff, but again, miniseries is one of those, like, I I don't want it to be an hour-long chop shop, so... Well, I was also wondering, and maybe this is what I would have done if I was getting miniseries, if you were just going to throw in a bunch of random red herrings that meant absolutely nothing. <laughs> like, elaborate descriptions of things that would not matter, ultimately. So I appreciate that you actually kept it tight and... Uh, a little more true to the movie. Yeah, and I wanted to basically use the the detectives as a way, because some of the, like, when you first are introduced to Adam, it's very hard to understand how he is going to fit into the story, but I feel like using almost a true, true crime with the detectives allows you to make those transitions a little bit easier, and then again at the end when basically they 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 narrate over one another, you know, so... I don't know. Yeah, I don't I don't know if it would have been a crutch to have the detectives in the movie proper more, mm -hmm. but I sure could have used them. Yep. So 
Alrighty, that concludes Chop Shop. I think we got three more segments here. Uh, we'll jump into some Blue Book because we haven't done one of those in a while. So, Travis, I'm going to give you the the market value, the the sticker price of this movie, and I want you to try and tell me what you think it grossed U.S. and Canada, and what you think it grossed worldwide. Are you ready? I'm ready. The estimated combined budget, because again, this started as a TV pilot and then was like <laughs> combined budget was 15 mil estimated. What do you think it brought in U.S. Canada? Uh, well, Lynch is Canadian, if I'm not mistaken. Explains a lot. So I'm going to give him a Canadian box office bump. Eh? I'll say 31 million. You're looking at about seven. In U.S. and Canada? Yeah, about seven million. Uh, I don't. I don't imagine a lot of people like were saying you should go. Like this isn't basically an art house film. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to get. I think uh, major audiences are going to go watch this. Yeah, but I thought this was a, a critical darling from Jump, so I would have thought it got a little more buzz box office wise. But well, maybe, I was wrong. maybe worldwide it, it made a little bit more. I don't know. What do you what do you think it made worldwide? So adding to the gross of US and Canada for a total of worldwide mm-hmm. eleven million. So worldwide. So okay, the number you gave me, is it the total gross or were you just giving me just the international box office? No, 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 no. U.S. and Canada plus okay. international equals eleven million. Got it. Uh, about twenty point five million. Okay, well, so it was internationally uh, far more successful. Yes, it made more internationally than it did domestically. Oh, and I forgot it had the French distributor, so that makes sense. Yep. So there's your blue book. Now let's get into my personal favorite tag and title. Are you ready for some tag and title, Travis? Oh, I'm very intrigued. All right, do you want it? Do you want an easy one this week, or do you want it to be a little more difficult? I mean, I want you to make this as inaccessible and difficult as David Lynch. All would. right, you're gonna get four. All right, so here's what's gonna happen, Travis. Under normal circumstances, I would give you three taglines. One tagline would be the original tagline for this movie. One would be a tagline for a movie I found adjacent, and one would be a tagline that I created myself. But to add a wrench in this, I'm going to go ahead and add a fourth tagline into this. All right, you probably know what that tagline is. Um, So what I need you to do now is tell me what the original tagline for the movie was. You ready? Hit me. All right. This is it. The most compelling dramatic story ever unfolded on the screen. A tale of heartache and tragedy, love and ambition, told against the fabulous background of Hollywood. An actress that really rolls off the tongue. An actress longing to be a star, a woman searching for herself. Both worlds will collide on Mulholland Drive. It'll be just like the movies. And your fourth tagline is Mulholland Drive, a place where dreams are made and nightmares come to life. 
Do you need me to repeat any of them? Uh, I gave myself some shorthand for each one. It sounded like before you read them, you thought one of them would be obvious to me on what it was a tagline for? No, no, I didn't. I just... Oh, okay. I just want to make sure because I don't. (laughs) Um, I think both worlds will collide on Mulholland Drive. Okay. That was my favorite one, and usually it behooves me to say that my favorite is also the one that you came up with. So the actress longing to be a star, a, a woman without a memory, whatever, both will collide on Mall and Drive. I think you made that up. Okay, that's the one you think is mine. Yeah. And then the one about nightmares on Mall and Drive, I think that is an official tagline. Okay. Uh, that first fucking word salad you provided... I have to assume that's for a real movie. No idea what it would be. Uh, Just like the movies, I'm also very intrigued by. It's simplistic enough where maybe that's the one that you created. So I'm I'm, mission accomplished, but I'm at a complete loss. (laughs) All right. Well, I will take a compliment that, you know, you typically go with mine. That is your favorite. Um, This week you were wrong. Uh, an actress longing to be a star, a woman searching for herself, both worlds will collide on Mulholland Drive is the official tagline for the movie. It'll be just like the movies is the official tagline for the 1999 TV release <laughs> for oh, Mulholland Drive. Fuck you. <laughs> I thought you knew for sure I was going that was going to be the the one I threw in there. This is it, the most compelling dramatic story ever unfolded on the screen, a tale of heartache and tragedy, love and ambition told against the fabulous background of Hollywood, is 1950's Sunset Boulevard, and Mulholland Mulholland Drive, a place where dreams are made and nightmares come to life, was mine. Well done, sir. Well done. (laughs) I had to know that that two and a half paragraph tagline was from something like pre-1960. Yeah. You mean when the tagline was a synopsis? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine trying to put that on a fucking movie poster? Oh, fuck me. Alrighty. You've alluded to it earlier. I'm very interested to know what your time capsule is this week. Yeah, you inadvertently kind of set it up perfectly with Lynch. I think you like him a lot more than me. I I don't like David Lynch movies. I respect David Lynch movies. <laughs> um, so it was interesting to me for Time Capsule. I wanted to look at the year this movie was released and what was tops at the box office. Uh, do you have any familiarity with 2001 at the box office? Uh I don't think so. Is that the year Eight-Legged Freaks came out? Uh, you know, I only looked at the top 20, Brett, so I couldn't tell you. Uh, Eight-Legged um, Freaks was 2002. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to give you a, a sampling of some of the top films of 2001. And, and I almost view it as a sign of things to come and why David Lynch is... Uh, probably appreciated more than ever, especially by you. Um, 
So the number one movie at the box office in 2001 was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Oh, shit. Are those movies that old? Uh, yeah, that was the first one. Oh, damn. Uh, the number two movie in 2001 at the box office was Shrek. Okay. Um, we'll cut down to number 10, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. All right. I can dig that. Number 12, The Fast and the Furious. Damn, okay. You're just naming off number things third. that have huge franchises. Uh, you see what I'm doing here. Uh, and the number 13 movie in 2001, Ocean's Eleven. Fuck yeah, all of those have at least four sequels. Well, Monsters, Inc., I'm not sure. I think it's got two or three, but all the rest of them definitely had at least three sequels. Yeah, so I cherry I saw Monsters, Inc. in there. Um, I knew it had at least one sequel. I wasn't sure how many. Um, but all the ones I mentioned, yeah, Harry Potter, I don't know how many, how many sequels did that spawn? Five, six? It, there's, there's eight of those movies, I think. Oh my God. Oh, that's, that's if you don't count the spinoff series. So at this point, I think they're near 11. And yeah, okay. I guess Shrek is modest in that it only had Fuck, what, yeah. three I'm, with a Puss in Boots spinoff. Yeah. I'm looking at the list now and like, it is basically a hodgepodge of things that got sequels or were sequels. Cause you got Monsters Inc. Then you got Rush Hour 2. Can't believe that was number four, but that was a sequel. Did they get a third one? Yes. The Mummy Returns, which was the second of what, four for that. Pearl Harbor didn't get anything, but it's kind of hard to make a sequel to Pearl Harbor. Jurassic Park 3 was a sequel, and then they that's now got its own new trilogy. Planet of the Apes got a whole new series. Hannibal is a sequel, is a prequel to three movies. Or, no, Hannibal was that a, no, Hannibal was a sequel. Red Dragon was the prequel. So Hannibal... Exactly, yeah. Sequel. Lord of the Rings had its three movies, plus when they did The Hobbits. American Pie had at least two more, I think, after American Pie 2. Fast and the Furious is on what... 10 now the next one will be the 10th not including hobbs and shaw oceans 11 has had at least three more movies so it's at four laura croft tomb raider had one more i think traffic and then a reboot then a reboot traffic one and done castaway one and done crouching tiger hidden dragon one and done dr doolittle yeah i mean it's crazy when you look at the top 15 almost all of them are multi-movie IPs. Yeah, and I think the the, the big ones that stand out for me are Harry Potter and Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings. I, I was surprised that Lord of the Rings checked in at 10. Yeah. Like, I thought it would be higher, but the second two movies were, yeah. were blockbusters. I would say they were probably top two or three of their respective years. But it's just interesting. You, you commented on Lynch being his own thing and just... He is the, the the fish swimming upstream against the downstream. So the, I, I don't like him necessarily. He's it's the fish like flying tea, above the stream. Where Hollywood was going. Yeah, this was kind of. I think Lynch only did one more feature length film, as far as I know. After this, um, that's an excellent question. I know he did Inland Empire in 2010. I think that was the last thing I remember feature wise. Yeah, then he probably got his Twin Peaks. I know he got to go back and finish Twin Peaks. 
yeah, I mean, it doesn't look like look he really did a whole lot after that. Yeah, and I mean, I don't. We can't speculate on Lynch's motivations. I mean, maybe he was just an older man and was slowing down. But it's interesting to see where things are headed. Where you know, Harry Potter dominates the box office, leading to you know six more sequels, Lord of the Rings. You know, it's literally an Amazon series, I believe, is starting in 2022 based upon that IP. So Lynch was kind of fighting a losing battle against the IP wars. It feels like. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah I, I didn't have much more than that. It's just like you said, I think Lynch is important in that it, he at least it was his very much his own vision every time on screen. But it's a it's a dying breed. Yeah, for sure. Very interesting. Uh, he was actually born in. Uh... Montana. Oh, interesting. I thought he was Canadian for some reason. Mm-mm. Montana's, you know, it's it, they're they're shining gem. So they they have David Lynch. But uh, yeah. Ultimately, let's go ahead and round up. Do you have any recommendations on this movie? What's your what your final verdict of Mulholland Drive? Well, Brett, technically the brilliant idea that you came up with for the Christmas Come Early trilogy, technically that's over. We were doing comparisons to, you know, Christmas gifts that you might get. I couldn't help but have one more for this movie. Okay. So when I was in high school, and to this day, math is not my strong suit. Anything above division and multiplication, when you talk about geometry, trigonometry, you might as well be speaking an alien language to me. And I remember one Christmas when I was really struggling in high school with uh, geometry, my grandmother, bless her heart, got me some sort of workbook that was supposed to make geometry fun. <laughs> Uh-huh. And fundamentally, I just cannot explain to my grandmother. I get great grades and everything else. Math to this level is just never going to be for me. I'll never be able to figure it out, no matter how much help you give me. That's the way I feel about David Lynch. <laughs> I respect high level math to a great degree. Please don't put it in front of me because I can't comprehend it. That's what this movie is for me. Okay. I have a great appreciation for it. I don't want to watch it again. I kind of regret allowing, quote unquote, Lynch's most accessible film to persuade me to try to pitch this one for this trilogy. <laughs> but at least, listen, we haven't done a movie like this. You know, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad we did it, you know? I'm this might be your least favorite. I'm hoping that the producers isn't a huge flop for you because it's an old move. I think it's like 1960. So like we're going to go from David Lynch back beyond your comfort zone in in terms of timeline of movies. And then honestly, we don't even know what we're going to end it with. Yeah, we're going to let the audience decide the last one. So this could (laughs) this could be your oh, man, your least favorite trilogy of all time. 
Yeah, potentially a hell of a way to kick off 2022. We'll see. I'm fucking thrilled. It's fantastic. So. Uh, uh, but what about you? What did you think of the movie? I mean, I it very much enjoyed it. Um, it was a little too long. Again, I was I was joking with my wife. I was like, we get on here and we bitch at least once a trilogy about movies being over an hour and a half long. And we hate when a movie gets over an hour and a half long when it's over two hours. Like it's just almost grueling. And I'm like, I can't remember the last time we watched a movie that wasn't two and a half hours long. So at a certain point, we're going to look like we have Stockholm syndrome or something. Um, (laughs) I did think the movie was a little bit long Uh, at the same time. I am. I'm a fan of David Lynch. I think he's kind of batshit crazy. And I enjoyed that ride. Um, Just, you know, when you just kind of like something happens on the camera, you're just like, what the fuck just happened? Or like, what's going on? I enjoyed the inept, like the inept hitman felt so out of place for this movie, but I enjoyed every minute of it. Like there's really weird art shots throughout the movie. Um, the very end of the movie when it completely swaps and we realize that the entire two hours you've been watching was a dream sequence, essentially like, and there's so much about this movie that's just kind of, all over the place and uh but it's a hot mess that i can't help but love i don't know if i would recommend it for anybody who's not a fan of david lynch or kind of like that surrealist style of of storytelling um i could see where a lot of people like would not enjoy this if you like twin peaks jump in um the original twin peaks not the not the re the sequel that came out whatever but um i i think it's worth a watch i think it's fun so um, I, but just I get ready back for it on you okay you say if if you enjoyed twin peaks jump in when you say enjoy twin peaks do you mean as a whole or twin peaks as a concept the first season i think as a I whole. twin peaks did a good job of being grounded early uh it did and it started to unravel but that's the thing is like I think that's a good primer because I feel like even this movie was a little grounded in reality at the beginning. And then, like I said, the the Dan Herb sequence is when the movie like basically kicks you in the groin and says, get ready because you're in a David Lynch movie. Up until that point, I thought it was pretty grounded. Yeah, I think it's a tough comparison to make because Twin Peaks being television, to me, you can watch the first three to four episodes of Twin Peaks, which is you know, four hours of content. Yeah. And you enjoy it because it feels grounded. And then, yeah, by the fifth hour, maybe things go off the rail. Whereas with Buffalo and drive and hit a lot of his movies starting off grounded may mean 20 minutes before things go off the rail. So it's a little bit apples to oranges as far as the medium in which you experience lunch to me. Yeah. It just, I guess that's my biggest thing. If you want a, a wacky weird movie not like wacky clownish it's just again weird like you best described it like you're almost watching a dream unfold uh in both the best and worst possible ways like definitely jump like watch it i think it's worth watching just i think you have to be ready for that going into it you wouldn't want to be in the crime thriller section of you know hollywood video and grab this off the shelf and then get home and be like what the fuck am i watching so i think it needs a little bit of a primer but i i enjoy it i would recommend watching it it is a little long though that that's fair that's fair so 
Alright, I think that about wraps us up here. Next week, we will be doing... Like I said, I think it's 1960s The Producers, if I'm correct. It's the 60s version. It's not the shitty 2000 remake. So, um... We will be wa- reviewing that next week. Uh, if you could head over to cinemechanics.com, um, we do have a poll up at the 1967 is the producers. Uh, but if you go over to cinemechanics.com, you can vote on our neck or the third movie in this trilogy. Um, that's C-I-N-E-M-A-C-H-A-N-I-C-S.com. We'll probably close that poll shortly after next week's review uh just to give people an opportunity to get in there and then like i said we need to close it off so we know what we're watching but we got four different movies in there for people to choose from um we're putting this in your hands it is between once upon a time in hollywood get shorty hail caesar and the player so uh and uh if you want to go ahead and type your email address in you actually can be entered into an opportunity to get a free hollywood chop shop t-shirt so you know, if you're looking to sport some swag and don't want to throw out some coin, this is the best way to get it. With that said, I'm going to close this out. Travis, you got any final words? Uh, I mean, I did have a question. Yeah. I think the uh, the poll for the third movie, I think that's a great way to drive audience engagement. Is that something you agree with? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, did you answer because you thought that's what I wanted to hear, or did you think about what I said and answer because you truly believe that to be right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I believe. No, you you fucked up the line, so I can't respond. With oh, what's what's I he say. say? I don't know what he fucking. Th- <laughs> he says I agree with what you said, truthfully. Uh yeah. You said I was going to remember that word for word. <laughs> uh, I only do because it was my favorite scene of the movie. Yeah. But since you agree, you must be someone who does not care about the good life. <laughs> yeah, so let's just say I'm driving this buggy, and if you fix your attitude, you can ride along with me. All right, uh, let me take this paper towel roll away from my cat real quick before we move forward. <laughs> okay. Fresh to L.A., aspiring actress Becky dreams of making it big. When she arrives at her aunt's apartment, she's surprised. Brett, Brett. God damn it. Yep. Who is Betty? Her name's, or no, who is Becky? Her name's Betty? Yeah, her name's Betty. Oh, god damn. I, well, my, one of her names. Yeah, my, <laughs> oh, boy, my chop shop. I'm going to have to be real careful when I'm talking. <laughs> it's Betty Elms. Yeah, I don't know why I thought Becky. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Uh, so it didn't matter. All of it was fucked up from the beginning. Okay. Take 17. Fresh to L.A., aspiring actress Betty dreams of making it big. Wait. <laughs> I'm sorry. Are you saying aspiring? Like she's spying Asp- on somebody? Asp- aspiring. Or aspiring. Aspiring. What did I say? A spying. Now you kind of fast forwarded and I got everything that I was supposed to get. Yeah, same. I heard that too. What the fuck? Is your cat chewing on the cable? <laughs>